0: Many in our age have written off the notion of following Jesus Christ. We are told things like, what? You're crazy to give yourself in devotion to a gospel life why all you are doing is wasting your life. And while that's not new rhetoric, and we've heard that from before, Uh, Today, the rhetoric is a bit more robust. It's a bit more than, oh, you're wasting your life. We hear things like, oh, you gospel Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. More strident yet is, uh, hey, your convictions as a gospel Christian are immoral and wrong. And while we perceive this to be the greatest pursuit in life to follow Jesus on the flip side, it's per, it's perceived by our culture as totally the opposite. If you want to waste your life, we are told, follow Jesus Christ. You want to waste it, take up a gospel life. Now, our kids are growing up in this culture. It's no secret that quietly many are ghosting the church, just kind of fading away and fading away from vital partnership in this matter of following Jesus Christ. It's kind of a soft de-escalation. I can only imagine that they have begun to conclude with our culture that this is a wasted pursuit, something not worth the energy of our living. I suppose it's a footnote on the verse that we could coin this morning, there arose a generation who knew not the glories of Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. The question that I'm asking is, it's one thing for the, to ask about what the world thinks of gospel Christianity. What I want to know this morning is, what do we think of gospel Christianity? Do we really know the glories of a gospel life? Are we passing them on to our children? Does this text before us this morning live in our soul? Come with me to Romans 5. I had the privilege of reading verses 1 through 11 to you this morning. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, as we introduced last week, there are seven glories in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that discuss a gospel life. We looked at three of them last week. This morning, we look at four more. I want to frame them as four reasons why a gospel life is worth it. That will create our outline. Why would anyone be interested? In a gospel life following Jesus Christ, are we gospel people at Calvary? Let's take up these four additional reasons this morning. Number one, gospel life gives purpose to our suffering. Look at verses 3 and 4. We've already looked at verses 1 and 2. Look at verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, please note that for the Apostle Paul, fundamental to gospel life is joy. He talks about rejoicing in verse 2. He talks about rejoicing in verse 3. He talks about rejoicing in verse 11. You get the impression that the Apostle Paul was convinced that joy should be fundamental to a gospel life. Remember, one question we are asking is, Are we gospel life people here at Calvary? The gospel Christian understands that suffering has purpose and can be productive. Now, in a broken world, the open secret is everyone suffers. We've never gathered for worship in a service like this, Without sitting down among others who are suffering. Not all of our suffering is proportionate, some more than others, some more intense than others, but suffering in a broken world touches all of us. Now, here's the glory of the gospel. According to verses three and four, suffering has purpose. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, you can know and understand that the providences that we go through have purpose designed by God. You say, Eric, that's really hard. Well, let me tell you about something harder. If you dismiss God and say that we find ourselves simply situated in a broken world and you do not believe in God, how can you make any sense out of suffering? That's from which the existentialists argue, hey, uh, suicide is the out. Why would anybody want to sustain a life that has no purpose in suffering, that has no meaning? Quite differently do gospel Christians look at suffering. You say, Eric, I'm suffering this morning. Well, I'm actually encouraged, not that you're suffering, but that God put you next to these verses, to ponder together the meaning of your suffering and his purpose at work in your life. Some people would make the argument, and they even, can I say it like this, sell Jesus this way, come to Jesus, and all your problems will be over. Well, that's not true. In fact, you have more problems when you come to Jesus you have problems with the issues of faith and a hateful culture that thinks gospel Christianity makes no sense at all. Warren Wiersbe has said justification, remember that's his topic he's been talking about in chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, being made right with God by faith brings us to peace with God, that's five, one. But Wiersbe makes the good point that justification is no escape from the trials of life. I think I'll I'll go to Jesus and get rid of my trials. Now, it is also true, while I am arguing that Paul makes a strong case that gospel life gives purpose to our suffering, it is true that suffering can embitter people. All of us know people who've been embittered by the harsh and hard circumstances of suffering that they faced in life. But it is also true that suffering makes some better, not bitter. And God is designed to use it in our lives to develop us. Isn't that what he's talking about? We rejoice in our sufferings. How, Paul, could we ever rejoice? Well, we know that in our sufferings, that suffering is producing something in us. It's producing endurance. And endurance is producing something in us, a gospel life. It's producing character. And character is producing something in us in the midst of our suffering, and it's producing hope. And we'll talk more about that hope in just a moment. Now, this word suffering, this word tribulation, is a a notion that in the New Testament describes God's means to bring us to maturity. Notice he layers these words up. They kind of form a chain, a sequence. Uh, Suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. Uh, Character, the idea of proven character, that our integrity as we respond to God in a gospel life begins to emerge Now, he uses the word sufferings, and it is plural. I love the scripture's blunt honesty about life in a broken world. It's not easy. It's hard. There are issues to face. There are disappointments. There is loss. There is grief. There is threat. There is fearful circumstance. And God uses these sufferings, plural, alert, that's the nature of the world. We shall face them. You see, Eric, I just, I just got done with some. Oh, praise the Lord. Get ready for some more. That, 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 that's how life works in a broken world. Is that not true? But in a gospel life, we see that God is working in the midst of our suffering to accomplish his purposes. Now, in the New Testament, this term for suffering is a term used for a culture that despises what we hold dear. It's a particular kind of a pressure from the culture that's saying, why have you thrown your lot in with Jesus? What sense does that make in a broken world? Paul is arguing it makes a lot of sense because the very broken things that we face begin to be a stimulus for God to work in our life and help us grow up in a gospel way. So much so that he would say in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. What's wrong with this guy? Is he a masochist? No, but Paul saw that in the midst of suffering, that suffering itself gave rise to God's best work in his life. And many of us, through the hardest things we faced in life, have come to understand the most treasured things about our God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ that we would not have known or been exposed to apart from the suffering. I'm challenged by Johnny Erickson Tata, who over 50 years ago, when she was 18, dove into a lake and broke her neck and has sat, as a quadriplegic in a chair for all of her life. And she has come not to curse the chair, but to bless the chair and her suffering because of what that brought her to in terms of spiritual progress, spiritual growth. Kent Hughes said, blessings are poured out in bitter cups. I happen to know that some of you, a few of you, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that I don't know. You're drinking bitter cups right now. It's hard. But what happens in a gospel life is we conclude that God has purpose in the suffering, and it changes our disposition in the midst of the suffering because we can have joy in the suffering knowing God is at work. Suffering is normal, and God is powerfully at work and has purpose. Don't miss the charge to be joyful in the midst of it all. Wow, what a gospel. What a challenge to be a gospel Christian. The second reason is that gospel life proves our hope to be real and substantial. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint us. We don't come to the realization of our hope and say, where's the beef to the hope? It's a nothing burger. We won't say that. I grew up next to my grandmother, my mother's mother. She was a delightful lady who indulged her grandchildren. We had so much fun. I wish I had, you know, once upon a time, uh, these uh, stores would produce a Christmas catalog full of toys back in, the, you know, before the earth dried out after the flood, you know, when I was growing up. But, um and and, and Grandma had a bunch of grandchildren, and we'd all rifle through her book, and we'd put our names next to the toys we wanted. I'd love to look through one of those and laugh today. But uh, one Sunday, the newspaper man threw the Sunday paper down, and back in the day when there used to be things, papers and uh, Sunday paper, you know, Parade Magazine was in there every week, and On the back of Parade Magazine, Grandma and I discovered the most extraordinary offering for $39.99. I remember, that's the price I remember. It was a 500 piece fisherman's set. I mean, it was a tackle box, and it was lures, it was sinkers, it was bobbers, it was hooks. It was lures. It was a fillet knife and a sheath. You put it back in. It was extra line. It was three rods. It was three reels. It even had a net so you could put the fish in that you caught. I mean, I, 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 Grandma and I said to the, I, Grandma, I've got to have this. I've got to have this. That was my birthday present. I remember she called me. She said, Eric, it arrived. I ran over there, and she and I opened it. And I did not have, in that moment, the heart to say to her, Grandma, that is the biggest pile of trash I've ever laid my eyes on. It bears no distinguishing resemblance to that ad that I looked at. on the. I was anticipating... You know, a semi to pull up, and Babe Winkleman, the fisherman's tackle box to be, you know, taken off and and, and laid out there in front of me. It was all trash. It was only further reinforced as trash when we went on vacation and and at Nolan River Reservoir, right here in near Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I stood out on a ledge of a bluff over the reservoir, and I depressed the button on my uh, reel, and I threw it out, and I watched. As my sinker took my lure, and, and there, there was about, what I came to find out, you know, about 14 feet of string on that thing, and it wasn't tied down. And my whole thing went in the, went in the Nolan River restaurant. And there I stood holding my thing. I was thinking, you know what? That was trash. That was very disappointing. I had great hopes. But when I got there to realize it, it didn't amount to nothing. That was 500 pieces of trash. Now that mattered to an 11-year-old boy. How I love Psalm 1715. It talks about the realization of our hope as gospel Christians. When I awake, I will be satisfied with its likeness. You know one thing you will not find in heaven when God's people go to be with him. You know, one thing that will not be present, anybody walking around whispering to each other, hey, you know what? This is a huge disappointment because our deepest longings that we have had as we are homesick for Eden and we feel it in our bones now, our disenchantment with life in a broken world, our deepest longings will be deeply met with satisfaction at the realized hope of Jesus Christ our Lord and Paul said our hope will not put us to shame nobody's going to regret throwing their lot in with Jesus through time the life of a gospel Christian proves the possession of our hope is certain and sure and real and substantial what the author of the book of Hebrews said was uh, a hope that's an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. Now, the third reason is that gospel life brings us to the experience of God's love. Look at Romans 5, 5 through 8. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. By the way, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans as we go through it verse by verse. Now, we know of God's love because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Objectively, God demonstrated his love in history. In time and space and history, God came in Jesus Christ and died on the cross for our sins. That's exterior to us, that's an objective reality that we come to understand. But Paul's talking about something else about the love of God here when he talks about the subjective reality of the experience of God's love, which is, and here's literally the way to read it, poured out in our hearts in abundance. That there is something, and Harry Blackerby would say, Amen, there is something to the experience of God's love. But what the Apostle Paul say was, isn't this, Eric, uh, a footnote on our spirit bears witness with God's spirit that we are the sons of God. That the experience of God is something to be had. Now, Baptist people are good about thinking about the gospel. And God be praised because Lewis is right. Christianity is a thinking man's game. But it is not any less than that. But the experience of God is so much more than that. This love of God being poured out in our hearts, gushing forth in our hearts. That's what the word means. Isn't it interesting that it's the word used in Acts 2.18 for the Holy Spirit being poured out. Here, Paul says, the Spirit of God pours out, just like Pentecost and that rush, the love of God in our hearts. So that we know objectively that Jesus died and demonstrated his love. And greater love is no man than this. And a man laid down his life for his friend. He loved us at the cross in dying for us. That's objective. External to us. But here this love of God shed abroad in our hearts. I think that's the King James phrase loosed within us, gushing out, poured out in our hearts. This pouring out is a subjective experience where we actually sense and feel and experience the love of God in Christ as the Spirit of God bears witness to what is true. There's a glory in experiencing God in Christ. I had I had a father from out of state call me the other night, and he said, Eric, my my son asked me, uh, he said, Dad, sometimes I don't feel like a Christian. And am I supposed to feel joy all the time? Because, Dad, I, I, I don't feel joy all the time. And this father, desiring to rear his son and godliness, said, Eric, Eric, what am I supposed to say to him? By the way, we need to send all of our feelings to reformatory school. When my alarm went off this morning, is it a disappointment if I tell you I didn't feel like a gospel Christian? I felt, is that all the sleep I got? Are you kidding me? I feel like this and it's Sunday and i got to be ready for the task. That was my feelings. Nor was I overcome with the love of God being gushed out into my heart. I find that that comes episodically. It comes and goes, my sense of it. And that's probably related to my inattentiveness. This gets back to what Brother, is it Brother Andrew? Brother, let's see, the practice of the presence of God, is that Brother Andrew? That we need to work at the discipline of recognizing and being conscious of God's work in our life such that it is sustained over time and not, coming and going, as it were. Now, th- remember, Jesus said in John 16, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he will abide with you forever. He doesn't come and go. David was living before Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when in Psalm 51 he said, Lord, take not your spirit from me. We don't have to pray that prayer, because the Spirit of God comes to abide forever in the life of Of the follower of Jesus. But isn't it true that you and I come in and out of sensitivity to the Spirit and come in and out of this, the love of God is poured out in my heart. Does that mean we never feel the love of God? No, not at all. We feel it, but I don't know about your experience. Mine would not be an unceasing, sustained, overpowering sense of the love of God all the time, actually, in existential experience. No, that's not my. In fact, I walk by faith, not by my sense of the love of God poured out in my heart. Are there special times of, that I treasure of having a sense of that in experiencing God? Absolutely. And I love Calvin's admonition. You know, we want an experience with God, but we want a scripturally mediated experience with God, but all to experience the love of God poured out for us. Now, Andy and I just have a lovely family. We thank God for our children, our spouses, our grandchildren. We also have a real family, and uh, we work through stuff it 's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, and one sibling will take umbrage with something another sibling 's done and then invariably we you know we 're paying for hey how do, how, do, how, do, how, how do I think through this and they 'll start into a jeremy ad, and some of them are just um, oversensitivity, some of them it's pride, some of it is general offense, and we figure out what to do. And, 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 and I probably have an undue desire to mess with them a little bit, and they'll, they'll start into a tale, and they're really passionate, and they're going through it. And, and, and I'll just start singing the chorus to that old gospel hymn, Love Lifted Me, you know, just love lifted me, love lifted me. Dad, come on! What about this? Because the only way out is love. We get to reconciliation in verse 11. There's only one way to get to reconciliation. Somebody's got to die. By the way, have you ever gotten in the middle of two who are irreconciled and tried to bring about reconciliation? It only happens when somebody dies. When somebody gives up their pride and gives up their will and just throws it in and says, I'm, I'm going to be like, be like God. Um, by the way if the love of God has been poured out gushed into our heart how could it be that we would manifest the works of the flesh anger malice desire for revenge ill will toward another person isn't that incongruent The love of God. You know the treasure of a gospel Christian? The love of God has been poured out in our heart. And please don't miss the point that he's making with the analogy. He says, you know, if you scour the earth and you find a good man, there might be somebody who'd say, you know what? I'll give up my life for them. If it was the best of the good. He says, there may be somebody. Scarcely you might find one. But he said, who's going to come forward and say, I'll die for the scoundrel. During the Revolutionary War, a preacher lived, uh, let me see if I, I get his name, it won't matter, Peter Miller. Peter Miller lived next to a guy who hated him, and hated his Jesus, and hated his faith, and mocked him all his life. Jeers and sneers and snide comments and threats. But Peter's neighbor got in trouble, big trouble, capital sentence, big trouble. He was sentenced to death. Pastor Peter started thinking about him, and that was back in the day when you could make an appointment with the president. And uh, he went to talk to George Washington about him, And he laid it all out before Washington, and he said, look, you have the power to pardon him. I want you to pardon him. And Washington looked at him and said, Look, I know he's your friend. I know you're concerned about him. But here's what he did. This is a just capital sentence in light of what he did. I'm not going to pardon him because he's your friend. To which Peter said, No, you don't understand. He's not my friend. In fact, he hates me. And we are not friends but I'm asking you to have mercy on him. And Washington was struck, and he changed, and turned about, and he pardoned him because he couldn't believe that somebody who had been so hateful to him would be advocating for him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. A friend of mine was sitting with a couple in brokenness. The husband had broken faith to the vows, and they were trying to figure out how to go forward. And she resolved to extend forgiveness and go forward, and she looked at him and she said, you know, something like, "I, I don't know how I can do this. And he said to her this, you are called to do just exactly what God did for us in Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You respond to him how God has responded to us. It was the linchpin of a wonderful work of grace that God did. Gospel life brings us to the experience of God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The fourth reason why a gospel life is a great treasure is that gospel life gives us reconciliation with God. Look at 9, 10, and 11. Men declared war on God. That includes all of us. God never declared war on us. In fact, our sin started the war that God offered to end through the means of Good Friday. And he has saved us from the wrath of God which is coming And will be justly levied. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. From what? Saved from what? From the wrath of God. The ages will consummate in an outpouring of God's just judgment upon an unbelieving world. And God offers eternal life to everyone who will believe in jesus christ if you want to be jeered hold up a placard that says turn or burn repent the end is coming and the wrath of god will come god will end the age pouring out his wrath on unbelieving humanity That's what we will be saved from. That's in the future. But we are being saved right now. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So there's a not yet part of salvation that we will realize in the future. And there's an already part of salvation that those of us who believe in Jesus are realizing right now. That the perfections of his life the God-satisfying justice of his death, the glorious hope of his resurrection is affecting how we live now. We are now being saved by his life. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who believe for he ever lives to make intercession for them. One of the great thoughts in the morning when you get up, I'd encourage you to take it up tomorrow morning, is that if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. He was praying for us all last night. Isn't that true? He ever lives to make intercession for us? I love it when someone tells me, I'm praying for you. You need to hear from our great high priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's praying for you. He's praying for you, and that matters. That matters. Now, the actions of Jesus have brought us to something, and Paul uses the term reconciliation. We have now been made, reconciled to God. Now, this is all framed in a passive voice. Now, I don't remember what Mrs. Pallant tried to pound into my head in the eighth grade as well. But what it means is the subject is acted upon. The subject is not doing the acting. So we have been reconciled. That's descriptive of the action of God to reconcile us. It's not what we do to be reconciled. It's what God does unilaterally to reconcile us to himself. In fact, he gives us as a gift this status. Eric, what does it mean to come to be a gospel Christian? It means we have come to be reconciled to God. Once an enemy, once at war, now he's given us the gift of being reconciled to God. Paul argues that reshapes our lives emotionally. More than that, we also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? Through whom we have now received something given to us. Reconciliation. Don't miss again that the hallmark characteristic of a gospel life is joy. Is that us? Is that you? Rejoice. Verse 3. Rejoice again in verse 2, verse 11. So that brings us to the question. Do you think Jesus is worth it? Do you think being a gospel Christian is a way to go in life? You know what's interesting? Back to this word gushed out, poured out. Really in life, there's two pouring outs that happen. Either a person recognizes their sin and their war with God, and comes to believe in Jesus, and has the love of God, here's the first, poured out in their hearts, or Acts 1.17, Judas went his own way, hung himself, here's our verb showing up again, fell off the gallows, and his guts poured out, and really as I thought of that th- those words that Luke uses in such a contrast and that's the word here isn't that a metaphor for life We either spend our days experiencing the love of God poured out in our life or we spend our days facing the consequences of our war with God and our indulgence And in that consequence, something else gets poured out, and it's really the guts of our life in the tragic consequence of a life apart from Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a glory to knowing Jesus that's unparalleled. A life covered by the love of God, a life declared right with God by faith, a life lived reconciled to God through the gift of his Son, So what will it be for our children? What will it be for us? A heart flooded with the love of God, which changes us into a loving soul and a happy pilgrim? Or a gut ripped open with stress, consequence, regret, guilt, and dashed hopes? So are we going the way of Jesus? Or shall we go the way of Judas? No. Let's go forward rejoicing in the gospel way. There's no glory and joy like the glory of knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him by faith in life. Father, I pray that you would use the text of Scripture to bring our attention, to bring our trust, to bring our submission to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Oh, Lord. Nothing but that will bring us to the experience of this gospel joy, even in suffering, that scripture speaks of. What would you have us to do? How would you bring us to respond this morning, Lord? Whose countenance do you want to lift up in the midst of suffering? Whose prayer do you want to receive? Anticipating the peril of a busted gut Judas life in the end oh Lord bring us with fresh gratitude to the throne of God hear us pray hear us respond we're weak and frail we need your help thank you Lord that in Christ it's available hear us Lord as we sing and respond